So last week we spoke a bit about uh, how to dig in to thoughts that are troubling us and uncover them. Right? Sometimes we feel afflicted. Or I, I like to, you know, describe those troubling thoughts as personal storm clouds, right? It's just a gray cloud in my sky, and I notice it. Maybe I don't notice it at first, but I, I feel it, right? It's bugging me. And we talked about how journaling can actually be a very useful tool for sort of laying bare some of our thoughts. Um, because journaling, as opposed to just reflecting in our minds allows us to kind of put one uh, stream of thoughts on a page uh, you know and we can look at them kind of one at a time in our brains we can weave all those together into a very complicated braid but when we write we kind of have to choose right so it allows us to kind of lay end to end sometimes our thoughts which can be useful uh, when we're feeling troubled and it allows us to examine those thoughts more closely. And, and as we examine those thoughts, we look for emotions, right? Some of those emotional words like, I love when, I hate when, I feel angry when, I'm scared when, right? So some of those emotions that we feel and, and how as we journal, we can identify, you know, three to five of those emotions, list them, and then rate, rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. 1, not a bother. 10, overwhelming. And then we start to pick that apart. We investigate that emotion. Like pulling out a weed. If you've ever pulled a weed out, some weeds, whoop, they come right out. Not very deep. Other weeds, you pull and you're like, oh boy. <laughs> it's long, long root system emerges <coughs> from this weed. And... In so doing, with our thoughts, we uncover these layers of rationalization or of guilt or of just habit, right? And once we identify the, the tip of that root, now we know kind of where this, this troubling thought came from. And now we can ask the four questions to better understand the, the source of that thought um, and potentially transform that thought into something more skillful and beneficial, which will reduce our suffering. So tonight, so last week I, I talked through how we might come to a realization of what that thought is. Now tonight I would like to do the, the other part of that, uh, that process, the other half of this process, which is asking the four questions. So we'll use the example from, from last week's talk where you know, maybe in, in evaluating our thoughts, we came to realize that we're struggling with a new work opportunity, maybe a new job or a new project um, that we're working on. And we realize we're afraid. What are we afraid of? We dug into that and we realized, well, the fear there stems from perfectionism and a feeling of needing to be perfect. And we worry that this new opportunity is going to expose our imperfections. And that's troubling us. So we'll ask the four questions around this thought 
of I need to be perfect. So the first question, what is it about this thought that is not completely true? So the first thing that we do is challenge this thought, right? Maybe it's not true. It feels true because it's bothering us. And so we assume that it's right. But what might not be true? Do we need to be perfect? Honestly, probably not. Right? Is there any job that requires perfection all the time? I mean, certainly you can look at a brain surgeon, right? <laughs> but I, I assure you, at some point, brain surgeons have made mistakes or things didn't go quite according to plan. That doesn't mean they don't fix it. But it also doesn't mean that they're perfect. So do we need to be perfect? We don't. Is anyone expecting us to be perfect? Probably not. All right, have we ever made a mistake in the past? Yeah. And when we did, was it the end of the world? No, it worked out okay. And is being perfect even possible? Not really. Right, so now we take this thought that we assume to be true and we ask ourselves, well, what about it maybe isn't quite true? We dig in. And we come to realize quite a bit about this thought is not true. So why does this thought exist if it's not true? You know, are we fooling ourselves? Why is this thought there in the first place? And that's where the second question comes in. And the second question is what belief or basic mental programming created this thought? So what gives rise to it? To this, this sense of, I need to be perfect. Where did that come from? Maybe uh, somewhere in our past, you know, uh, from some kind of trauma where a mistake led to a pretty tricky situation. Or perhaps some mode of thinking that served us well at one point in our lives, but now that thought has outlived its usefulness. And so we have a series of four mindfulness models that can help us evaluate what might be the cause of this thought. I must be perfect. And these are very... <laughs> <laughs> vast oversimplifications of these four mindfulness models. I, I would encourage you to check out uh, Sensei Tony's book, Free Your Mind, for a bit more detail on these. But I, I want to kind of talk through how each of these models could bring about this notion of I have to be perfect, right? I must be perfect. So the first mindfulness model is the true self-esteem model. <coughs> So, in other words, are we oriented to our self-esteem, which is where we understand our innate value of being, our true self, self-esteem, or are we oriented to our self-confidence, where we evaluate ourselves based on things that we do and the things that we have, the things that we own or feel we possess? So, does this thought, I need to be perfect, come from me seeing my value as a function of what I own or what I'm capable of. In other words, am I, am I conflating self-worth with a job? 
does it mean that if we're fired or unemployed that now we're worth less? Right? Because, ooh, I was at a 10, then I got fired. Now I'm at like a 7 because I'm unemployed. Ugh. Right? Is, is that the cause of this? Perhaps. It depends. So the next mindfulness model is the perfection versus wholeness model. So, ooh, this sounds promising because perfection is right there in the title. But let's talk through it. Let's see. Maybe this is the, the cause of that thought. So if we're experiencing change, you know, such as a new job opportunity, right? New relationship. End of a relationship, right? Change. Are we integrating that change from a place of wholeness, which is both and, right? I can still be learning and doing a good job, right? I can make mistakes and be successful, right? So wholeness is both and. Or are we rejecting or resisting that change from a place of perfection? Perfection is either or. Right? I know what perfection is and this isn't it. Right? It's either this or that. It either has to be perfect or not worth doing. Right? So does this thought of I must be perfect come from this model? Am I insisting that things need to be a certain way or just not worth doing? If I can't be perfect, I shouldn't bother. Right? Perhaps. We can see from those, uh, from that description of the mindfulness model, how I must be perfect comes from that model. The third model is what we call the transactional model, or sometimes we refer to it as the parent-adult-child model. And oftentimes we can tell that the thought is originating from the transactional model if we hear a critical voice. Right, kind of in, in the, the, the back of our mind, right? That critical voice is typically the voice of the parent, which represents past conditioning, right? We are the heir of our past conditioning. And that critical voice often results in a hurt inner child, right? This might be because we grew up in a, uh, with a, a highly critical parental figure. doesn't necessarily need to be a mother or a father, but anyone who played a parental role in our lives could be a coach or a boss, right? A priest. That critical voice, right? Or our parental figures were so supportive that we needed to create our own critical voice to compensate for that. Oh, you can do anything. Ah, no, I'm not. I mess up all the time, right? So we tell ourselves that. And the goal with the transactional model is to identify the voice of a third party, not the parent or a child, but the adult, right? The voice of the adult is compassionate and emanates from the true self and it allows the child that maybe is hurt and struggling under the critical voice of the parent to run free. So... Does this thought that I need to be perfect come from a critical parent? 
or an overly supportive parent who didn't prepare us for the real world? Perhaps. It depends. And the last model is the transpersonal model. This is one of our models of the psyche. Oftentimes we'll see it depicted as a, a set of concentric circles with the ego on the outside followed by the creative impulse of the anima and then the shadow which is where unintegrated thoughts lie and then our true self in the middle we'll sometimes see this as a series of concentric circles as I said or as a cone or the bottom of the cone is the uh, ego self and then the top is the true self and what this model allows us to investigate among other things is that if we don't accept or acknowledge certain parts about of ourselves and integrate them accept the whole thing warts and all as they say whole kit and caboodle as they say but accept everything about us the things that we like and get us places and the things that we don't like and sometimes hold us back or feel we hold us back we don't integrate those things we may push them into that shadow right which is that raw spot right next to the true self but just outside the true self at least that's how we see it and sometimes those things build up pressure and they come out in other ways right they come out in projections you know things that we dislike about ourselves when we see in other people we're like I hate people like that right but we're seeing ourselves that's why we don't like that right or you know maybe we see things that we think we need because we're trying to fill some gap I need this I need this I need that right because there's something that we're not integrating integrating so does this thought that I need to be perfect come from me not aspect or not integrating an aspect of myself you know maybe I'm easily bored and I don't like that I, I, I refuse to accept that tendency and so I sublimate that thought by insisting on always jumping at new things right never admit that I'm bored so I'm never going to allow myself to be bored so I'm always going to have new jobs always going to have new relationships always going to have new hobbies so is that the cause of this thought I need to be perfect because there's a part of myself that I don't think is perfect and I'm refusing to accept it perhaps it depends right and I, I go through those four mindfulness models to show that it could be any one of those you know whether the word like perfect is in the name of one of the the models or not it could be any one of those and it's worth familiarizing yourself with those mindfulness models to be able to look at these thoughts and and say which of these might be at the the cause it might be the the cause right because when we understand the cause of a thing we oftentimes simultaneously understand that thing's undoing if we see that it has a beginning we can understand how to end it but that may be very unique to each of us it may have to do with our upbringing and our experiences which are going to vary you know between each of us so that's the second question which model or mental programming gave rise to this thought 
And then we ask the third question. Has anyone else ever had this experience? Right? So the first question, we challenge the thought. The second one, we investigate its source. The third question, we're universalizing this thought. Has anyone else ever felt the need to be perfect? Chances are yes. They have. All right, it's important for us to universalize these thoughts for two reasons. One, it helps us to understand that we're not alone. Right? These tricky thoughts connect us to one another. It's very easy to find things that, oh, you know, we're different because of this or we're different because of this, you know. But tricky thoughts, they make us human. Boy, we're all similar in that regard. We have tricky thoughts. That person that we've been friends with since we were kids, they have tricky thoughts. That person we can't stand, <laughs> they have tricky thoughts, right? We all have that in common. So it allows us to recognize the fact that we're not alone. And these these thoughts, no matter how you know willing we are to admit to them or how you know we would refuse to admit to them for fear of reprisals or or being ostracized or ashamed for some reason they connect us right because we all have them and the second important thing to realize by universalizing our thoughts is that we know that others have gone before us right this is where the notion of faith comes into play you know a lot of times we think of faith as being the belief in something we can't see or may never see or have never seen right but faith is actually belief in the fact that something that has worked before is going to work again i like the example and i forget where i've heard this example but i like the example of you see someone jump over a, a gap maybe a dry creek bed in the woods you're like boy that's a that's a big big gap how can we get across that and you see someone do it and now suddenly you've having seen someone do it you're like maybe i can do it right gives us confidence that we can jump over that creek bed because we've seen it done even if we've never done it before ourselves so recognizing that others have felt the need to be imperfect the need to be perfect and they can go on and be happy despite their imperfection can give us the confidence that we can go on and be happy despite being imperfect. So we challenge the thought, we look for its origins, we universalize the thought, and now in this fourth question, we're going to see what we can do about this thought. Right? And we tend to ask this fourth question in two parts. What would it mean if this thought were actually true? So now we're bringing it out into the real world. The, the light of day. We're going to lay it end to end. Right? And then what creative action could we take? So, we can play this situation out in our mind. Right. So what would it mean if this thought were actually true? What would it mean if I actually had to be perfect? Let's play that out. 
well, you know, would would not being perfect mean that we couldn't be forgiven for making a mistake? Probably not. Would it mean that we'd lose our job making, you know, not being perfect? Probably not. Let's say it was, though. Now, let's say, like, hey, someone found out we weren't perfect and we lose our job. Would we want to work for that company <laughs> where we have to be perfect? Would we be able to find another job? Probably. Let's say we're, we're not perfect and we lose our job. Have we ever been unemployed before? Is there ever a time when we weren't working? Sure. What did we do? What would we do? Get back up and find another job. Right. So oftentimes we find that our worst case scenarios, when we lay them out, we're like, well, it's actually not that realistic. It feels realistic because we're not looking at it that closely. And this is, again, why, why journaling and going through this process of asking these questions is so important is because, you know, we have these mental um, mirages, right, where hazy at a distance kind of looks right kind of looks true I guess I'll just believe it but when we really get close to it and take a look at it we're like that's not real right this this worst case scenario is actually pretty unrealistic you know it's built on some pretty shaky foundations and shaky assumptions but we need to think it through so we can watch that unlikelihood play out in the theater of the mind sometimes so what would it mean if this thought were actually true? We entertain the thought, right? And now, what creative action could we take? So seeing that, now we've kind of defanged this thought a little bit. It's not as dangerous as maybe we thought it was, because we found that it's not actually all true. We know where it comes from. We know that it's not unique to us. And we know that even if it did happen, that it's not the end of the world. So what can we do? Right? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is our practice. Right? So now we can formulate another thought to counter the untrue thought. I need to be perfect. Or take creative action to overcome that untrue thought. So for example, if I notice this untrue thought creates tension in me. I need to be perfect. Maybe as I drive into work in the morning or when I get an email from a, a certain customer <clears throat> or I have a task that I have to complete. I see that task on my list again. Uh, I feel that tension. And I feel that thought. I have to be perfect. I can't screw up. Oh my God. We can replace that thought with a new thought. For instance, this is a great opportunity to learn something new. Chances are that thought, just saying that, writing that down, compared to I need to be perfect, feels different. Or even if I do mess up, I'm still a 10 out of 10. Nothing can take that from me. That's important. That's what being oriented to the true self means that we recognize that there's nothing that we can do or say 
will, that will ever lower our value, including making mistakes. Another thought might be, I actually know more than I think I do, and I'm being really hard on myself. It's a bit more compassionate, right? That's a more compassionate adult voice as opposed to a critical parental voice. Or, you know, an integrated thought, which is I can make a mistake and still be successful. So we can tell ourselves this. We practice bringing these thoughts into the situations where we feel the thought that's afflicting us. So instead of I need to be perfect, I need to be perfect, we say, it'll be fine. I can make a mistake and still be successful. Even if I mess up, I'm still a 10 out of 10. Right? And and all of these thoughts, all of those examples could be things that counter the troubling mental pattern. And so we replace that harmful pattern with something that's actually going to be much more useful. It's going to help us stay calm and help us be um, more ourselves in those tough situations. And those thoughts, those counter thoughts, usually originate from our true self, our Buddha nature. And we can tell that those thoughts are coming from, <coughs> pardon me, our Buddha nature, because they are compassionate, they are loving, they are realistic, and they point a way forward. As opposed to thoughts that are rooted in our ego selves, which tend to be harsh and critical instead of compassionate, angry or hateful instead of loving, unrealistic, right, or stuck in the past or in some impossible future. Those are ego thoughts. Lastly, after we ask the four questions, and this is incredibly important, we need to follow up with ourselves. We need to check in. Maybe a week later, we've been practicing this new thought, this new more useful thought in the situations that have challenged us. Are we, you know, experiencing the difference? Are we feeling the same emotions? Are we rating them as high as we did when we were journaling? Right? Maybe that fear that was an eight a week ago, now that fear is like a six because we're working with it. Are we noticing new emotions that are helpful to us? And are we subtly orienting ourselves to our Buddha nature, to our true self? And suffering less and when we notice these positive changes it demonstrates the effectiveness of our practice and it builds faith right faith in our practice because we see it is working it's not just an intellectual exercise it's something that we do and my goodness it works right so when we encounter tricky thoughts in the future we know well I have something that works for that I can do this process and it works. I can journal. I can challenge the thought. I can look for its source. I can universalize it. I can entertain the worst case scenario and find something that works better. And it makes me feel better. And I'm suffering less. And it shows us that we can free our minds. 
And, you know, I, I, I've spoken about this before, an analogy that I really like for the mind, a metaphor, which is the waterfall. And our minds are like waterfalls, right? We can't change necessarily, you know, the, the past um, and, and, you know, where the water is coming from. But we can change the flow of that waterfall. Sometimes even just a tiny little pebble can redirect the course of that waterfall and make a big difference over time. That's why we do this. That's why we practice. So, I hope that has been helpful. And encourages your practice. <laughs>